could turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, we commenced chapter 2 two weeks ago, and we return to it again. I think we'll take time, I wasn't going to, but we'll take time to read the opening 12 verses again. So chapter 2, reading from verse 1, let's hear the Word of God, let's pay attention. Maybe something even that I'm not going to deal with in the reading that God has for you right where you are this very day. So let's give heed to His Word. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Amen. Again, may God give us the light that we need to understand His Word with profit and be blessed by it. Let's all still our hearts in prayer. Let's all momentarily seek Him for the help that we need. Our Father, we come to Thee again, thankful for everything that has preceded for all the truths that have lifted our minds to consider what we already enjoy in Christ, and also the lawful prayer of every believer, we ask that Thou wilt give us the answer that we seek for concerning our own lives. Give us a mind and a heart like Thine. Make us to be conformed more and more into Thine image, Lord Jesus. Therefore, to that end, take the word that we will consider today, that it may sanctify us, as our Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. May we know that ministry of the Spirit of God amongst us. May it be evident by every individual gathered. And may all of thy people, as well as those that are without Christ, know the impact of the word. May we all know what it is to be reconciled to God and walk with Thee day by day. So hear our prayer. Fill this preacher with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and love and grace and all that's necessary to communicate Thy truth. We hand ourselves to Thee in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was over at the recent conference at the university, Bob Jones University, One of the preachers there on one occasion quoted Bob Jones Sr. saying that he used to say, you can't move without causing friction. You can't move 
without causing friction. A simple statement, and yet one I think it's fair to say we should consider in light of what we face in life in terms of trying to live as Christians. I think the Apostle Paul knew what it was to experience friction, knew what it was to feel the burn of a world that was in opposition to all that he was seeking to do. This man, as he endeavored to fulfill the calling that God had given to him, was not appreciated by the world at all. In fact, he was opposed. We read of it in the opening two verses which we looked at two weeks ago. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. It wasn't without profit. There was profit in it. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. And you know the history. They were at Philippi before they went to Thessalonica. There they were at Philippi, shamefully entreated, Yet they were bold, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. We kept going, and we came into your city with the same desire, the same intention, the same longing of heart to just bring you the gospel, bring you the word of God. The world, however, opposed them. Not even every Christian valued him, as we learn from the first chapter of Philippians. But that didn't stop him. He would say within the context of an uncertain future in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Paul would not be moved by men. He would be moved by the gospel. He would be moved by the sense of his sins forgiven and how that would motivate him in living. But the opinions and threats of men, whether of high rank or of low, did not change his course or direction. Now, two weeks ago we said, as you come into these opening verses of this chapter, and specifically from verse 3 through verse 12, Paul is writing very much in terms of his own life and his own experience. And I said to you then that he's either giving a self-description in light of the philosophical hucksters of the day, or a self-defense in light of personal attacks against him from those trying to discredit his ministry after he had left Thessalonica. Either he's distinguishing himself from others or defending himself against others and their words concerning him. And the latter view is the most common one. The most common view is that Paul is defending himself here. That against what had been said and what had been shared and as there had been word brought back from from Timothy concerning what is going on in this city now, there, there's in, intermingled with all the, the progress that they're making is the language, well, there are those there trying to discredit you, Paul, and they're saying certain things, so he begins to address then their view. Now, he, he, he is a wonderful example for us, a, a tremendous example. In fact, you know, I was, I was thinking of, of verse 8 really encapsulates all of what is going on and we read it there just a moment ago when he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Essentially, as Paul writes in defense of his character, he is underlining that truth, that I didn't come just to bring the gospel of God. That's what God commanded me. That's what Jesus Christ has commissioned me to do, to bring you the gospel of God. But I didn't stop there. I didn't just say the words. I didn't just speak the truth. I didn't just come and tell you what is true concerning the Messiah. But I also, also give my very own soul. I give my very own soul. Now part of what we're seeking to do as we go through these verses is how they relate to leadership. And we're saying that because Paul was a leader. That's the context. This is a leader giving us a little insight into what it's like to live in a world that is contending against you. A world that doesn't want you to be about the business that you're engaged in. Doesn't want you to fulfill the commission given to you by God. That This is what you're faced with. And as leaders, myself, I put there, and leaders in this church, those who are elders, especially, 
But even other aspects of leadership, even, even as parents, or even as teachers, or whatever may be our employment, or even we may have those that work under us, as we seek to lead, there are characteristics that, that the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, shines a light upon that really we are learning from the Apostle Paul. And our brother in the adult Sunday school, he turned to Isaiah 53, and I was thinking about how Paul was willing to give his entire soul to bring the gospel. Well, where did he learn that from? Where was his example? How did he come to such a point that he was willing to give his own soul to communicate the Word of God and to bring the gospel? Isaiah 53, verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great speaking of the Messiah, pointing forward to the way he would live, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There should be this enjoyment of the spoils being divided because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, none of us can in any way begin to do what Jesus Christ did. This is His atoning work. This is his, Him bearing our sins upon His own body. But the example is there. The example is there. Paul, if he was looking for an example, what is it to live out in ministry? What is it to be the servant of all, as Jesus put it? What does that look like? It is to pour out your soul unto death. And so Paul writes, and really, everything hinges upon verse 8. All that he is saying really should be seen in light of this. But I didn't just bring the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. I imparted my very soul to you because you were dear unto us. Now part of the difficulty that is faced at times with leaders is trying to be understood for in, in the right light and in the right context. Paul didn't have a long time in the city. He didn't spend a long time there. And that perhaps is part of the problem. He had just been there a matter of weeks. I was thinking about that even in relation to myself. And how, really, <clears throat> you come here into Greenville and you come and take up a new ministry. But in a very real sense, you, you kind of just see yourself in a sense of, of continuity. You're in one place preaching the Word of God, like Paul, you're in Philippi, you bring the Gospel, and then you move to another place, and you bring the Word of God, and, and you're, just, you're just trying to bring the truth and bring the Word of God. But I understand that by being there just a brief time, there's more likelihood for there to be a question about his motive, about his character, about the kind of man that he is that brought the message. And this is why it was easy to discredit him, or, or more easy to discredit him, because he hadn't been there all that long. And as you walk, as you trace a man's life over a period of time, then it becomes much more difficult to discredit his life. And what I realized then in considering that was, well, you know, I, I was in Calgary, you were there for four years, and you're not just bringing the Word, but you're pouring out your soul to the people and you can go up before them, and you can bring the Word of God, and they know, they know the intent. They know all that's behind the Word. They know the man behind the message. And I realize, well, really, I'm, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> come here recently. It's not quite, what is it, three weeks to the day? Or th three months to the day that we're here? It's not a long time, really. And yet, it doesn't change the message. It doesn't change the message. It doesn't make a difference in terms of what is to be brought. And as you look at, as you examine this chapter, and I think if you give your heart to really examine it, and I'm going to do my best to mine it out with you, but I have been really impacted for good in reading over these verses over and over and studying them in depth. It just seems like wonderfully the Spirit of God has highlighted. And there's other places where this happens. Second Corinthians really Paul, in many places, he's arguing for his own character, his own ministry, his apostleship. But, but this was, was, was new to me to see the, the, the depth and the richness of what is brought to light here by the Spirit of God in terms of the kind of man Paul was and not just the message that he brought. It's very instructive. And of course, if we are going to learn the Christian life, we are wise to learn it, 
learn it from men like Paul and those of his caliber. We don't learn much from those that don't do much, which is why I think the Holy Spirit shines so much upon the life of Paul, even, even beyond Peter's life in many ways. Certainly in terms of, we have Peter in the Gospels, but lots of that is, well, here's not what not to do in many regards. But when it comes to the positive, for the most part, is that not learned from Paul in the New Testament? Is the Spirit of God not bring a real focus upon Paul as what it's like to live out for the glory of Christ your life? Paul is the one that's set on the pedestal. He is the one the Spirit of God says, this man, this example, this character, this person, this servant of the Most High God is the one you want to pay attention to. Not exclusively, but certainly he should give, be given all the energy that is required to learn from him what we can. And so the Spirit of God even using, using the attack upon his character, the attack against the man, as he seeks to respond to that, the Spirit of God just opens up all these truths, and tremendous truths they are. He knew what it was like to be attacked. I heard a minister say something one time to the effect that those that lead from the front must be prepared to be kicked in the rear. And that it rung true at the time when I heard it and continues to ring true as I carry on in life. You must be prepared to be kicked at times. And if you're going to be in any form of leadership, I mean anyone here who's ever run their own business or had people under them, but especially when you run your own affairs and the stop, the buck stops with you, especially there, you will learn how difficult it is and how easy it is for people to actually, the people that you give their, their wages to, that you, you help them keep a roof over their heads and provide them with employment, they actually turn against you. They begin to speak against you. They begin to murmur against your ways. They begin to, to, to try and scrape away to see your motives for the decisions you make in running your business and so on. Yes, yes, it's very common. Anyone here who has had his own business or has his own business will know exactly what that's like. And so Paul here shows what it is to give your soul even in spite of all the attacks, and to, and to see, we see here the kind of character that God uses powerfully to influence the lives of others. And so last week, in the opening two verses, which really isn't part of his argument, but sets the scene in terms of, of an example for us, we, we looked at boldness. We saw the boldness that caused him to go and make that entrance there, verse 1, that was not in vain. Well, it wasn't in vain. Why? Because he continued on to do what he did in Philippi, even in spite of how he was treated in that city. And God used it powerfully. And it was boldness that drove him to continue on. This sense of just, we must continue to speak the Word of God and continue in the way God has called us to. But just before we get into the meat of the text here that we're looking at this morning, I want to give a caution. I want to give a caution. And the caution relates to being defensive in terms of attacks upon your life. Paul gives an example of that here, if the majority are right in their understanding. That it's not just a self-description, it's a self-defense. And there are times when that is necessary, but we must be careful that we choose those times right. You will learn, if you have not already, that you will waste a lot of energy, a lot of energy, especially if you're in leadership, you enter into politics, you enter into some place where, where, where people will just have an opinion about the work that you do, ecclesiastical life, in terms of the state or anything else. I mean, even parents. Even parents know what it's like when your children get to a certain age, they begin to question you. <laughs> they begin to doubt your insight in a matter, and they begin to say, you know, question in terms of, well, you know, I think this, or do not think that. And you get these discussions that happen as they begin to question you. That's just a little insight into what it's like. You get people, when you're dealing with adults, they can be much more forceful at times in terms of their opinions and how their insight. And we can get defensive, and it's not. It's not the way to be. We don't want to be defensive all the time. But there's a, there, there's a reason why he's being defensive. I made mention of it last time. It's because 
the work of God is at stake. If, if, if they can just malign him and destroy his character, then everything he said can just be set aside. It doesn't matter. It was all a hoax. He was a liar. He was a fraud. He was a cheat. So they just do away with everything. And so he has to come to his defense. And, and we see even from our larger catechism that being required at times under the ninth commandment. You read in the ninth under in the larger catechism concerning the ninth commandment, it's question 144. And I'll not read it all. It's quite lengthy and it's, uh, it's very humbling. But it asks this, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own. And it elaborates near the end a little bit on our own name. And it says this, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth. Love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth. And this is what Paul is doing. The need requires a defense of his own name, of his own character. And so that's what he seeks to do. So as we consider, we're kind of continuing the theme of characteristics of Christian leadership. We come from boldness and consider now truthfulness. Truthfulness in verses 3 and 4. Note with me, first of all here, as we look at verse 3, the style of Paul's truthfulness, the style of his truthfulness. You'll see it in a word that's given there in verse 3, for our exhortation. That's how, <coughs> excuse me. That's how he styles it. That's how he styles his approach to coming in amongst them. Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, and so on. Our exhortation. Literally, this word is, means calling near. It's a compound word, calling near, to call one near. And the scholars tell us that this is the act of emboldening another in belief or a course of action. In belief or a course of action. In belief or in duty, we might say. You can even bring that into the catechism as well. <clears throat> what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And that's really what this word is. Exhortation to impact men on their belief and on their duty or course of action. <clears throat> and it has the sense of imploring, entreaty, summons. That's the sense of... The <clears throat> There's a frog in my throat. <clears> throat. He doesn't want to go away. It has this sense of, of imploring, entreating, and summons. And so, when you read this word, and this is why I put it as style, because I think the word encapsulate a certain style, our exhortation, our exhortation. It's not our, our conversation, our, our little discussion. It was our exhortation. Paul is reminding them of the way that he came in. And, and by using this word, he is showing that he wasn't just imparting information. He wasn't just coming with a message that allowed people to say, and listen to me on this, he wasn't just coming and saying something that people would say, well, isn't that interesting? And then go home. That was interesting. Kind of like what happens in Athens when he goes there in Acts chapter 17 and you have him go and they, we will hear thee again. And there's, there's this, this idea of you know, gathering to hear some philosophers, some new idea. And they walk away and say, well, isn't that interesting? Paul did not preach that way. That was not his intent. This word indicates that he was calling each individual to a verdict regarding the truth of what was said. And that is preaching, beloved. That is preaching. Teaching imparts information, but preaching calls for a response. Preaching should include teaching, but mere teaching is never preaching. Have you ever heard the prayer of someone? And I don't mean this in any way disparagingly. It's just a reality at times, and I think I've been guilty of it myself. But at times you pray, and you may... It, it may be all accurate and true. There's nothing wrong with it. But if, you, if you're listening carefully, you'll realize they didn't ask for anything. They kind of went around the world, maybe doctrinally, maybe in terms of their experience at that present time, and they're, they're going around and they're thanking God for this in terms of thankfulness and thankful for certain truths that they know and they're aware of and 
glad that the blood of Christ cleanses them. And they're not really asking even for forgiveness. They're just kind of talking in terms around the circles of, of these things that are true. And you're listening and you realize they never actually said or, or asked for anything. They never besought God for anything. They never requested anything from God. The kind of prayers that go on and you never had an opportunity to say amen very often because you, you want to get behind them in terms of what they request normally, what they're asking for. On the other hand, you will, you will have you know, those prayers and that just get to the point. Lord, help us. Lord, save us. <laughs> you know, all the great, some of the great prayers in the Bible, I mean, they're really small, short and direct you think of, of Peter as he begins to sink in the water and he's sinking and he's about to drown and he doesn't begin to go, Lord, you have all this power and I know you can deliver and if it be your will, would you be pleased to save me? I mean, he doesn't have time for that. He's, he's sinking, he's about to die. Lord, save me. <laughs> Lord, save me. It's just, it's just straight to the point. Help me, Lord. And even when you read the lengthy prayers of the Bible, Again, they will extol God, they will praise God, they will recognize God for who He is, but they will then get to the point. They will get to the heart of the issue, perhaps even the real motive for why they bowed their head before God in the first place. There is a need, there is a demand, there is a request that needs to be brought. Well, in like fashion, the prayer that never asks for anything is a bit like the communication of information that makes no demands upon a person. And it's not preaching. Preaching doesn't do that. Paul says, he styles it as our exhortation. He was calling for a response. The preacher demands a response to the information he shares. For that reason, it must be discriminatory and applicatory. And children, discriminatory, discriminatory just means, you listening children? The big word. <laughs> Discriminatory just means it discriminates in terms of it makes it very clear, boys and girls, it makes it very clear who's a Christian and who's a not, who's not a Christian. It makes very plain who's the hypocrite and who's the genuine. Preaching doesn't let, leave it out there in terms of make up your own mind. It gets right to the heart. It makes it very plain so you begin to feel, if you are on the side of the hypocrite, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. You begin to sense the weight of it. And you have to either repent or you will react in rejection and unbelief. Preaching deals with hearts. It is discriminatory. It makes men aware of where they stand before God. It pulls away the refuge of lies. This is why. This is why there's the, the great prophets, they, they did not beat about the bush. They laid the axe to the root of the tree. They made it very plain. We were just reading family worship the last couple of days going over Matthew chapter 23. You want to see solemn, serious, sustained language against the sins of men? I mean, I don't know if a sermon ever has been preached that was so direct and so exposing than the language of the Lord Jesus Christ to the scribes and to the Pharisees. He, he did not beat about the book. He, 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 he lays it down very plainly, very clearly. And there's almost, there's almost no hope in the message at all. He ends, your house is left to you desolate. I mean, this, it's a horrendous message in terms of the gravity of it. But if anyone had any sort of tender conscience, they would have been brought to repentance right there and then. He was calling for a response, making them know that they were hypocrites. And this is what the preacher does. He addresses the conscience of man and his relationship with God and men, both. How are you related before God? How are you going on with your relationships with men? Addresses both. So someone may come in and say, but everything between me and God is great. It's great. Going on with God. Living for God. Loving God. Praying to God. But he also gets to the relationships between you and others. Yes. Yes, there you are. Praying. Praying. Having your devotional time there on your own, reading your Bible. But how are things with your wife, man? How are things with you and other believers? How are things really going on in your life? That also needs to be addressed. In fact, God says, I'm not interested in your offerings to me if there's a problem between you and others. Not even interested. Go. Leave your gift. 
Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Preaching makes this very plain. It clearly defines, to say again, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, both by belief and practice. If the man doesn't believe what's right, he should be aware of it. You deny the deity of Christ, somewhere along the line you should feel very uncomfortable, like you don't belong, and you need to repent of it or leave. And the same in terms of belief or practice, how you live. You can't continue to live like an unbeliever. Let them that name the name of Christ, what? Depart from iniquity. The Lord knoweth them that are His. That's true. Right there in the context of what Paul's saying there. The Lord knoweth them that are His. But if you name the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. So preaching makes plain the experience and the practical outworking of genuine Holy Spirit-led religion in contrast with the experience of the hypocrite and unbeliever. And to preach in this fashion, to preach in this fashion is the first and primary stage of part of the eldership of the church which involves discipline. That's like a bad word. Like people don't want discipline. Well, if, if there's no discipline in the church, you don't have a church. Reformers made that plain. There has to be discipline. But what we often miss is the first stage of discipline, the first step of discipline is the weekly Word of God brought to admonish, to teach, to exhort, to reprove, rebuke, to straighten out our hearts, to get us to live the way God has called us. And by that, that we are kept, we are preserved from ever getting to the point of private rebuke and public censure and finally excommunication. Before we ever get to that, there has to be the subduing of sin by the Word. The discipline that comes weakly from the Word that straightens out our hearts. This is what Paul says, our exhortation. He summons men. He made entreaties to men. He called them out as sinners and straightened them out in terms of what they were required to do before God. And so this is why Paul describes or styles his communication with them as exhortation. At the same time, it brings encouragement. You can see that even in the language that he used. You see, verse 7, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse. So there's a gentleness there. There's that aspect of being very gentle. The ability to make a point without losing a friend. I think someone said it. Gentleness. And so he was able to make his point without losing their friendship. But again, he was, he was like a father as well, wasn't he? He would teach them directly. No nonsense. We exhorted and comforted you, verse 11, and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that ye would walk worthy of God. See that? See how he was directing them? See, see the focus of his ministry? I want you to walk worthy of God who hath called you onto his kingdom and glory. Which is why a big part of his ministry was in terms of the practical experience of life. The battle within, the battles without. The need to keep my own heart pure, as well as the need to deal with all the onslaught of the enemy and all that I'm facing in a world that hates God. That you must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. So the style of Paul's truthfulness, exhortation, the standard of his truthfulness is given. What's the standard of it? Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. There's a layering of charges here that came at him, that he was one of deceit and uncleanness and guile. And you can maybe divide these up into two primary ways. You see first the public truthfulness and the private truthfulness. The public truthfulness, where he talks about deceit. He came to deceive was the accusation that was made. In other words, he came to tell you error. That everything he said was, was wrong. And what Paul is saying here. Our exhortation was not of deceit. It was not. I came and told you the truth. And if you go back and read what he did in Acts chapter 17, what did he do? He came and he opened the Scriptures. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have died and suffered and so on. He opened the Word of God. His, he could be absolutely sure that he was not deceiving, that there was no deceit. He was absolutely assured because he just simply opened the Word of God. He opened up the Word. 
point sinners to Christ and to build them up in their most holy faith. And it wasn't a focus upon how the men and women would feel, but upon what they knew. And so he would teach them. Remember what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, talking about those that were, that were tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. And Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't come and deceive. That was not me. They accuse me of deceit. My exhortation, our exhortation was not of deceit. That's the public truthfulness. There's the private truthfulness as well because he's accused also of uncleanness. Uncleanness. That's moral impurity. They're accusing him of moral impurity. Now, there was nothing that Paul had done publicly that would anyway bring shame upon his name. This is an accusation concerning his private life. And particularly not in terms of, and again there's debate here, whether there was an accusation of like immoral living, in terms of, of his, his lifestyle, relationship-wise, immorality in, the, in those terms. But I think the sense of it is, is actually how the Lord Jesus used the term in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27 when he said about the scribes and hypocrites that they were within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Corruption, that's the idea. Corruption, moral impurity. Like there's these hidden private sins and especially with regard to motive. I think that's at the heart in context. Our exhortation was not of deceit nor of uncleanness. I'm being accused of moral impurity like I have a false motive in coming to you. Like there's something wrong in my intent. But Paul's motives were as they were meant to be. He would later on say, verse 4, of course, not as pleasing men, but God. Repeats again in verse 5, God is witness. He knows that he has lived the right way. He knows it before God. His motives were as they ought to be. And this is what you want. This is what you want in leadership. You want pure motives. <sighs> this is what you want in terms of, of, of ministry, really, as well. Take, for example, if a man begins to say to himself that he needs to start catering to certain individuals within the church. Now, there, there's a right way in terms someone may say, well, you know, you should address the children a little more or, you know, address the seniors more. Well, that's, that may be true. No great problem there. But, but if a man begins to feel within himself this desire to, to win over, I want to win over a certain crowd, a certain group, I want them on my side. Inevitably, inevitably, he, is, he, is, <laughs> he will find out two things. First, he will find out by seeking to please them, that he will bring others against him. Others will not be pleased. They will not be happy. They will begin to say, what's wrong with you? Or why are you doing this? And so on. And they, they will be displeased. And you'll, again, you'll realize that you, you simply can't live that way. But even worse than that is the sense that you're doing wrong before God. If a man begins to have impure motives in terms of why he brings his exhortation and who he's trying to win over, he is being wrong before God. Paul says, I didn't have any uncleanness. My exhortation was not of uncleanness. There was no impurity as I brought my exhortation to you. The motives were absolutely pure. As pure as I can testify before God they could be. Again, you read down through the passage, you realize that Paul was very aware that he had one person watching him and all that he did that mattered. And he uses the word guile. This is the idea of bait. It's, 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 it's really getting at the mechanics and the machinery of his, of his methods, the way, the way he came in and what he did. The idea of bait, of course, is that you use something to lure someone in or something in. You put, you put a worm upon a hook and you, you throw it out there to try and get the fish or whatever. It's bait. And men can do the same. They can, they can put out bait. They can, they can try and have certain bait that they put out to try and bring people in, to, to, to draw them in, to get them after them, or to influence them. It's, it's bait. In fact, the word is used 
concerning the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 4, about the religious leaders that they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety, is how it's translated, but it's the same word. It's by bait and kill him. Same word is used in Mark 14, verse 1. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft, by bait, and put him to death. So they, they, these, this, this was the kind of people they were. They had an objective. And to achieve that objective, to reach that objective, to accomplish that objective, they would use bait. They would seek, they would seek to lay out the bait. And Paul says, I didn't use any bait. Not at all. There was no bait in terms of what I was about when I came to you. So they would critique his methods. But I think, I think what they were having a problem with was, <laughs> as he says in verse 1, that his entrance was not in vain. In other words, it was profitable. It was not empty. It was profitable. There was value in him coming into that city. And what happened? You go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. In other words, when I came, there was a sense of God's power when we came. We experienced God coming in power, influencing hearts. And as men would observe the influence that Paul was having upon individual lives, upon homes, upon families in the community, they would begin to examine his tactics, his methods. What's he doing to manipulate people? Oh, here's what he's doing. And they would try to scrutinize and criticize and, and dissect everything he did and say, well, it's because he did this and you were led astray by that. And he's using certain linguistic tactics and argumentation and rhetoric in order to lure you in and lead you astray. That's, that's, that's Paul. And of course, men are guilty of bait, aren't they? But, but Paul... Where, where, were, where was the music that would go on and on and on? Where were the lights that were dimmed to create an atmosphere? Where were all the kind of other machinery that even churches use? Churches use as bait to get souls in, to get them to make a response. None of that with Paul. He's standing in a synagogue, opening the Word and preaching. That's the initial experience of their conversion. Of course, they will pull away from there eventually and they will begin to teach house to house and instruct those that have been converted in the things of God. Teaching them how to walk worthy, as he puts it in verse 12. Walk worthy of God. He would get down to the nitty-gritty of Christian living and say, here's what the Lord expects. Here's what the Lord has called you to. But as he came in there, what did he have? He had, he had the Word of God. That's it. Just talking with someone yesterday and it came to my mind about how Dr. Paisley described Martin Luther and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he, he said that all Luther had was a Bible. He just had a Bible. That's it. And he gave the Pope spiritual rickets and has been suffering from them ever since. I always laughed at that. But it's true. Luther didn't have any machinery. In fact, the Reformers largely pulled away. They stripped away all the machinery. All the manipulation. All the bait. All the tactics. All the guile. All the subtlety. All the uncleanness. All the deceit. It was all stripped away. And a man would get up and he would open the Word of God and people would give attention to God's Word and they would instruct them in the Word. And beloved, that's what I hope it goes on here every Lord's Day, every time the Bible is opened and I trust God is in it. And that God will faithfully bless it as we are faithful in doing this, engaging in it with, with no intent of deceit or uncleanness or guile, not baiting people. Not trying to manipulate people. Not trying to lure them in. Not trying to cultivate certain tactics and methodology of, of our modern age. But just trusting God. And that's what happened. Paul went in there very simply. But the power of God was known. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. It didn't always happen this way. It didn't happen to the same degree in Athens for sure. But it happened here. God was pleased to come and an outpouring of a spirit, and men were standing back frustrated. Evil men, corrupt men, were frustrated, frustrated by the influence of the Spirit of God upon the lives of those that heard the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, we have the support of Paul's truthfulness. The support of it. Come to verse 4 of chapter 2, and he says, But as we were allowed of God... 
to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. How was Paul allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel? Well, there are two aspects to this. I think one is predominantly on his mind, but there's another one that was important as well. You might term it in these ways. One was personal conviction, the other was public confidence. Let's look at the first one. How was Paul, how was Paul put in trust with the gospel? How was he allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel? First, personal conviction. Paul had a personal conviction concerning his calling, didn't he? He knew very clearly, even from the day of his conversion, read his conversion accounts, not just in Acts 9, but elsewhere where he, get, where he gets up and he stands before men and he testifies of his own experience there on the Damascus Road. And you will find out that from the day of his conversion, and whether this was directly told to him, I think it was going by his later testimony, but certainly Ananias was told it, when the Lord sent Ananias to go to him, what did he tell him? That he would be a light to the Gentiles. This man is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Whatever the case, early on, Paul knows by personal conviction that he is called to preach. And so he senses it. He knows it in his own heart. In fact, he would record in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's referring there to this sense that was given to me, and this sense of personal responsibility to give out the gospel that God had given him. And so he did it. The source that drove, that gave Paul the encouragement to go largely was the Lord. And this is, I think, predominantly what he's referring to. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. God gave it to us, commended it to us, entrusted it to us, and we went according to his command. But there's not only personal conviction, there's also public confidence involved in this especially when you read the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul had the confidence of the church in terms of his ministry. He did not simply do what he wanted, especially in a specific calling. What was his specific calling? To be a light to the Gentiles. That was his predominant sense of calling. The sense that the Lord had equipped him and prepared him and thrust him into the other nations beyond Judea, to go into the uttermost parts of the earth to bring the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Christ. And so away he would go. But he didn't go just upon his own feeling. Like many today, he didn't just decide, I believe God has called me to go to this land or that land or that nation, that people, that city. God has called me and I'm going. And they go. They just decide one day they're going and they go. They have absolutely zero support from anyone else. Zero recognition from any others before they go. None whatsoever. And Paul didn't even live that way. In fact, Paul does not become a light to the Gentiles until when? Until Acts chapter 13. Barnabas had called him up to Antioch. He needed help. God is blessing that church abundantly, powerfully. Perhaps one of the strongest churches in those early decades of ministry in, at that time. And Paul's part of that. Barnabas has brought him up to help. Tremendous things are going on. But as the leadership multiplies and strengthens, you will know what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, many of you, that they begin to pray. And the Spirit says, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work we're on to, I have called them. But Saul knew that already. Saul knew he was called to the Gentiles. Saul knew he was separated to go and minister in farther areas. He knew that. But he didn't budge an inch until the church recognized it. Until the oversight said, yes, this is the will of God. We recognize the gifts. We recognize the leading of the Lord, the opening of opportunities. I don't know all that's going on there in terms of how the Spirit made it abundantly plain. But the church leadership, no. They, there's no opposition, in other words. A man senses, senses the call and it will be validated by public conviction, not just personal. People will see the gift, the ability, the opportunity, and they will 
give credence to the sense of personal call. He will. Now, if that only was followed out all the time, we wouldn't be in the craziness of the ecclesiastical mess we have in our day. When everyone thinks that they are worthy of another Bible study in their home. And they're the, they're the new Spurgeon. They're going to do their own thing. It's not it. It is not it. It's not biblical. And often it undermines the work of Christ. And does more damage than good. Now I'm not saying that the mere organizing of it all is always right. I'm not saying that. But things must be done decently and in order. And there's a normal process for this. And Paul actually submits to it. It's about 13 years, if I remember correctly, from his conversion to him becoming a light to the Gentiles. 13 years laboring before he actually fulfills the sense of personal conviction of what God had called him to do. Waiting for the church. Not waiting in the sense of doing nothing. Busy. Busy locally. Busy in the work. Teaching and discipling. But doesn't go until the church recognizes it. And so he has a sense not just of... Because men can be deceived themselves, can't they? How many? Maybe you know of them. They have this sense of call. <laughs> and I heard a story one time of one lady who said she was called to be a missionary somewhere in Africa. And she got all this support and went round the churches and people gave money and so on and away she went. She lasted about a day, if I remember. I don't know, it wasn't very long. She didn't last very long and she was back again. Returned home. Well, what happened about all the verses? She went around saying, God has told me this and told me that and told me the other and all this kind of thing. And this is why you don't just go on things like that. Why you're very, very cautious about, I believe God has said, listen, <laughs> God gives encouragement and confidence from His Word, but He is also the sovereign over providence. And if you're really called, the spiritual leaders in your life are going to recognize it. They're going to see it. They're going to see it. If it's that obvious, they will see it. And providing you're not in an apostate church that has no heart for the gospel, opportunity will be given. Even so we speak. As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. The Lord gave us this. And the Lord even gave us it through the church, a sense of what we're called to do put in trust with the gospel, and that's what we speak. And so that's what he did. He just spoke the word. That brings us to our final point. The superintendent of Paul's truthfulness. The superintendent of Paul's truthfulness. And this will come out as we progress through these verses more, so I may not take too much time here, but he goes on in verse 4 and says, Not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Not as pleasing men. Paul responds directly to the charge against his motives that he's just trying to please men. So he has deceit and uncleanness and guile. There's, there's, there's moral impurity there undergirding everything. There's bait to try and win people over to his side. There he is. But he spoke the word, he says, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. He sought to please God alone. God superintended everything and He was aware of it. I'll tell you, there's no greater deterrent for sin in your life than an awareness of the presence of God. You want to be kept from sin, private sin, sins unknown by others. You want to be kept from them? Have an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. We bought... My mother, one time, I wish we had bought two of them actually. It's very nice. We were visiting the south of Ireland. And this, this lovely little kind of plaque, very nicely done, that said, Bidden or not bidden, God is present. Bidden or not bidden, God is present. The sense you look at it, it reminds you. Every home needs it. Every home needs it. A reminder. There in the wall. 
God is here. Before you raise your voice in anger, before you respond in the flesh, before you act out your carnal desires, the reminder, God is present. I mean, would you do the same things if the Lord Jesus was standing right next to you? No, you wouldn't. You would change very quickly. Your whole attitude, your whole direction, your whole manner of living would transform if the physical presence of Jesus Christ was right next to you. But he is there. He is there nonetheless. And Paul had an overwhelming sense of this. As I say, I don't want to elaborate too much. Time is almost completely gone. But he, he repeats it over and over again. Not as pleasing men, but God which try their hearts. God knows. My only desire is to please God. Now, we'll, we'll deal with this, this, this aspect again. But I, I want to, just before we close, consider something else here that really is a lesson for us by implication in this. And that is the temptation the temptation to do what others were doing with Paul. And that was what? Trying their hearts. Trying to test their motives. Trying to, trying to understand exactly why he was doing what he was doing. And why he had the influence that he had and so on. It's this, this sense of, of, of going after men in terms of areas that only God knows. It's very dangerous. This is why our larger catechism addresses the sin of, quote, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions. And also the sin, quote-unquote, evil suspicion. Misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, and the sin of evil suspicion. A German reformer, Zacharias Ursinus, who authored the Heidelberg Catechism, speaks of the virtue of candor. He talks about the virtue of candor. And in speaking of that virtue, he said the following. That candor, quote, understands, the person that has candor, understands in a proper light, things correctly and honestly spoken are done. And puts the most favorable construction upon such things as are doubtful. The most favorable construction upon such things as are doubtful. He then writes, there is opposed to candor as it respects to the want of it. Calumny and suspiciousness. Calumny is not only to criminate and find fault with the innocent where there is no reason for it, but it is also to put the very worst construction upon things spoken indifferently or to propagate and coin what is false. Suspiciousness is to understand things spoken correctly or ambiguously in the worst light and to suspect evil things from those that are good. Or to entertain suspicions where there is no just cause for so doing. And where there are, are any proper reasons for suspicions to indulge in them to too great an extent. End quote. And he goes on dealing with it. Very enlightening. But our larger catechism deals with it. And this is what Paul was experiencing. The misconstructing of intentions. People looking at him and saying, here's what he was doing. Here's what he was attempting to do. And they were trying to manipulate people to, to come away from him, or rather away from the one that Paul was trying to join them to. Because Paul's desire was what? I want to join you to Christ. I want to join you to God through His Son. I want to join you to Him. My words direct you to Him. And the words were completely misunderstood, twisted, distorted, and intentions were all, all corrupt. You see, beloved, love thinketh no evil. And we must realize God tests the heart. He tests and tries the heart. Paul knew this from the Old Testament. Psalm 7, verse 9, The righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. And he could, Paul could say with David, as he did in prayer in Psalm 17, verse 3, Thou hast proved mine heart, Thou hast visited me in the night, Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing, I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. And Paul was the same. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. It's just truthfulness here through everything. It's just truthfulness. He is being true. And beloved, as we close, that, that is a precious commodity. Absolute truth. Absolute truth. Truth that comes from a sense of 
God sees, I must, must speak true. And even where there's that sense of, of, of the temptation to misconstruct someone's words or deeds, some way they may be you know, doing something and you become to be a little bit uncertain of, of what is driving at that. What's the motive there? Why did they say that? And, and, and you get into, your, into a pickle, but worse than that, you begin to misconstrue things. And you're not being true. You're being false. And you're propagating falsehood in your own heart, first of all. And then perhaps as you begin to talk about it with others, to them as well. And you break the ninth commandment. And you destroy your own heart and your own fellowship with God because God hates lies. I mean, ask yourself this. Where would we be if God was not absolutely true? If God said, if God, if God communicated to the world, you know what? You're okay. You're fine. You're fine living as you're living. Doing as you're doing. It's all okay. Carry on. And then at the end, you stand before the judgment. Lost! Lost! And you would say, there's no justice in that. You said we were fine. You said we were okay. But you see, God, God is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And so He tells us He is angry with the wicked every day. And He tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. And He makes it abundantly clear that none can justify Himself. By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. He is absolutely true all the time. Always true. And he brings truth incarnate into the world to walk amongst men. And yes, it brings him to say tender words of compassion over the multitude as he looks over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thee as a chicken doth her hens, but you would not. And at the same time, stand before the religious leaders, propagate publicly before the crowds. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Absolute truth, 100% of the time, all the time. And that, that beloved, if we are called to lead, or let's just put it this way, in looking at the best leaders like Paul, who learn from our Lord Jesus Christ, we see the example and the value of being absolutely true in every area of our lives. May God help us. May He raise up true leaders in this church and strengthen those in truth that are already leading. Let's bow, to pray and bow before God in prayer. Seek His face. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, I want you to be true. Be truthful about it. Or you say, I don't know where I am before God. I want you to be absolutely truthful about it. As Paul was aware that God tried his heart, God knew every intent. He knew everything, everything going on within his mind. You need to be aware of that as well. And you need to be absolutely true before God because if you're hiding under a refuge of lies, it's not doing you any good. Be absolutely true before God. Be absolutely true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And He made it plain. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. No man. He's telling you the truth. You want forgiveness. You want reconciliation. You want acceptance. You want to be right before God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Even now, where you're seated, you can cry out to Him for mercy. You can come and say, Lord, I want to be right with You. I want to be saved. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to stop living a lie. I want to know what it is to live in truth and have peace of, peace of conscience and set free from the burden of sin and the cares of life. Lord, we pray Thou wilt make us all to be absolutely true, to 
be truthful in all of our ways. We pray for grace even to know how to speak truth seasonably, as well as to withhold it at times when it would be unseasonably spoken. Give us such discernment. Give us such understanding. We pray that in all of our dealings, from the innermost part of our hearts and our minds, we would be true, absolutely true. Grant it for this church, for its oversight, for its elders, for me, for its deacons, for every member, and for all that participate in this congregation and its ministries. Make us true. Make us above reproach. Make us to be blameless. Make us, O God, to walk with Thee in the light of Thy Word. Thank Thee for Thy Word. Bless it to us. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against Thee. Bless our fellowship before we leave. Bless our meals to us in our homes. And bless us with Thy presence as we return here this evening. We ask in Jesus' name.